We're continuing with our series, Jesus Is, and everybody grab your Bibles, because we're going to jump right into um, what we're going to be talking about today. So I hope all of you are able to get your errands and finalize things done, and if you see uh, me and the kids in Target, just go the other way. (laughs) We'll be there a while. All right, so we are going to look at Luke chapter 2. This has kind of been our theme verse for this. Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to be starting in verse 6. Luke chapter 2, as we know, contains the story of Jesus' birth, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And for reasons that I'll I'll share later, I'm going to be reading from the NIV today. Um, And so your version, you know, your translation may be slightly different with some of the words, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 6, says, While they were there... In Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And we'll stop there. Each week we've been finishing this phrase, Jesus is, right? All the names that we have been looking at come from Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 here. And we've looked at Emmanuel, which means God with us, implied in the text here. Last week we looked at Jesus is Savior. And today I'll be looking at this one right here. Jesus is... Messiah, okay? We'll be looking at this huge box labeled Messiah. And I don't, I don't know if you guys have, but it's awful tempting to just rip it open and see if there's really there's nothing inside. Are you sure? A reindeer hat for my wife? <laughs> Something? Okay. So we're going to be looking at Messiah today. Jesus is Messiah. And on the surface, sometimes I think maybe for a lot of us, this one, Messiah, may be one that we're the least familiar with. I think maybe we can connect or you know, get the idea of Emmanuel, God, with us. Um, I, I think we might have more of an understanding of Savior, and, and, but Messiah seems to be the one that um, might be a little more difficult to figure out because it's not one that we're you know, used to growing up hearing necessarily and all that. And so... What, what we're going to do today as we take a look at Jesus is Messiah is we're going to come to notice what an incredible and powerful descriptive word Messiah is. And so we're going to open up this box, not literally, but we're going to open up and unpack what's inside as far as Jesus being Messiah and what that means for us today. So, are you ready? Here we go. Luke chapter 2. When I read it, you may have noticed that the word Messiah wasn't there in some of your translations. Anyone notice that? Yours may have said something different. What did you have? What did yours have? It says Christ, right? Okay. Because Messiah, it uses the word Christ instead of Messiah. Why is that? They're the same word. They're synonymous. They, they mean the same thing. So in Hebrew, Messiah actually means anointed one. And, and in the Greek, Messiah is translated Christ. 
So it makes sense that these words are interchangeable in some of our translations of the Bible. So all throughout the New Testament, we read this term for Jesus. It says, Jesus Christ, which could also be translated as Jesus Messiah. Okay, I want to just make that clear. So the term Christ or Messiah is translated as anointed one. Well, what's, what's significant about Messiah or the anointed one or Christ? Well, that's what we're going to spend a few minutes talking about this morning. In the Jewish culture, anointing was used um, or, or given to someone. Someone was anointed for service, like that of a priest or, or a king. The old, in, in the Old Testament, Saul was anointed king of Israel. Remember that? And then David was later anointed king of Israel. The anointing. Anointed means one chosen by God for a special task. And in the case of Jesus, he was anointed as the one that was to usher in the kingdom of God to earth. So that was his special task in which he was assigned. The Jewish people expected that one day God would not, send, would not simply send an anointed one, but the anointed one, the Messiah. And this is the one of whom the angel announces in Luke chapter 2. See, God promised the ancient Israelites that a Messiah would come to establish God's kingdom on earth once again. Fulfillment of this great promise could only come through Jesus, Messiah. And this is what I want to focus on today. That Jesus is the anointed Messiah who came to establish the kingdom of God among people. Which is absolutely incredible as we go through and unpack this. I think we're going to see that not only is this incredible um, for what the Jewish culture is able to see, but also for what we're able to see today in the 21st century as Christians. See, the people of Israel looked forward to that promised individual who was to be the anointed one, the one who would be supremely set apart and consecrated by God to be their prophet, priest, and king. So at the time Jesus was born, there was a strong sense of anticipation among the Jews who had been waiting for their Messiah for centuries. This was very normal for them to be excited or wait in, in, in anticipation of this Messiah. However, their interpretation of the Old Testament and the prophecies seemed to yield a very different picture of the coming Messiah, as we can see on this side of it. So to help us understand Jesus as Messiah in the context of Jesus' culture back in first century as a Jewish person, we're going to need a new perspective. So I want everyone to take off your 21st century Gentile Christian hats. Awesome. Some of you are really good with this. You're throwing them. Like chucking them into a crowd. Okay. Take those off, and I want you to replace it with a 1st century Jewish hat as we look at some of these messianic prophecies. Okay. Yours may not fit right. It may be a little uncomfortable because we're not used to it. But put it on. So, this actually kind of reminds me of a story of a man who, um, who went with the task of teaching, or I'm sorry, he translated the Bible into the Lisu language and then left a young man with the task of teaching the people to read. So he, he translated it and then said, all right, now it's your job to teach your people in this language how to read the scripture that I've translated. When he returned six months later, he found three students and a teacher seated around the table. Good job. With the scriptures opened in front of the teacher, and when the students each read, they left the Bible where it was. 
The man on the left read it sideways. The man on the right read it sideways, but from the other side. And the man across from the teacher read it upside down. And since they always occupied the same chairs, that's how each learned to read. And that's how each thought the language was written. Seems crazy, doesn't it? A lot of times, we're kind of like that. We learn something from only one perspective. We may think it's the only perspective, right? Sometimes it's good to change seats, isn't it? And assume a different perspective on the same truth. They're still all reading the Bible. So let's try that this morning. We're going to switch seats from our modern day Christianity and we're going to switch it to the right or the left or across, whichever one you want. It's up to you. But and to look at this from a first century Jewish perspective, all right? Everyone have their hat on? Are they in the right, different seat now? So now you're really uncomfortable. The hat hurts and the seat doesn't feel right on your rear end. But here we go. We're going to jump right into it. The most important thing to understand about someone living in Jesus' day was that their understanding of Scripture did not include the Old Testament. It's very easy for us to look back on the Jewish people in the first century, and when they look at the Messiah, they're like, man, how could they not get it? It seems as clear as day. Well, we have the luxury of viewing it from the New Testament side, all of that being fulfilled. They did not and could not see the rest of the story, the bigger picture that we do, because it hadn't happened yet. They didn't have a Christmas or Easter They were still abiding by the Old Testament law, a law and system that had grown corrupt even and extremely political, one that created an elitist class of ultra-religious, socially powerful people. That was the culture in which they were living. So it was through this lens that they would have read and been taught the scriptures, including the Messianic prophecies. Does that make sense? Very different. With this perspective, their picture of Messiah morphed into something unrecognizable, as we would find out later, to even Jesus himself. As noticed by Jesus' words towards the religious elite throughout the New Testament, obviously they had painted him in a wrong picture. So what were these prophecies that foretold of the coming Messiah? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at four specific prophecies, messianic prophecies, just four of the many that we could look at. And the prophecies actually start of the Messiah all the way back in Genesis, right after the fall of man. Genesis 3, verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The need for Messiah began the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? It caused that separation. From that moment on, God put into place the events that would culminate in the coming of Messiah himself, Jesus, fulfilling this messianic prophecy. Jesus did come and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And these are all aspects of what we would say is Satan's kingdom. And he established God's kingdom then on earth, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. Another one in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, verses 5-6, through it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. For evidence on how that scripture was fulfilled, all you have to do is turn to Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew goes to great lengths showing his readers how the lineage of Jesus goes all the way back to King David. He was of the lineage of King David. Or Micah 
5, verse 2, it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Right in Luke chapter 2, even if you go, go back a little bit, it tells us that Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, fulfilling that prophecy. Or Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. The verse, this actual verse from Zechariah is actually repeated in Matthew 21, verse 5, describing Jesus fulfilling this prophecy during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Ironically, the only time recorded in Scripture where Jesus is seemingly accepted by the majority of the Jewish people in that one moment. These are just, over, these are just four of the over 300 messianic prophecies Jesus fulfilled during his 33 years on earth. To put that in perspective, the chance of Jesus fulfilling just eight of, the, of those over 300 prophecies has been figured out to be 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros after it, which is a huge improbability. Or think of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies this way. Take Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies. How many of you like those? Yeah, when, when I was a teacher... And you know, we had in elementary school, all the girls seemed to be in Girl Scouts. And I'll just say this: if you buy from one girl, you got to buy from them all. I had way too many Girl Scout cookies. I'd come home, Kristen's like, "We have to have a budget for your Girl Scout cookies." And then the Boy Scouts were coming with their popcorn things, and I'm like, "Well, I got to buy those now." You know. So, anyways, way too many Girl Scout cookies. But think of it this way: those those thin mint Girl Scout cookies cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Okay, with these cookies. Then take one cookie, lick all the chocolate off. Kind of gross, but it would taste good. Okay. Throw it back in the middle of the state. Mix all the cookies two feet deep in the state of Texas back up. Blindfold yourself. Walk around the entire state of Texas. And then bend down and grab a cookie. The chance of you grabbing the cookie with no chocolate on it is 10 to the 17th power. Now that's not real good chances. Not real good chances at all. Jesus, though, think of, think of this, Jesus fulfilled over 300 messianic prophecies. That is defined as mathematically impossible. Or for that to happen would be an absolute miracle, wouldn't it? Are you still in your first century Jewish culture chair and hat? Are you with me on that? It would be an absolute miracle. Since the Jewish people of Jesus' day were well-versed in the Old Testament and the prophecies pointing to the arrival of Jesus as Messiah, surely they wouldn't miss this long-awaited miracle, right? But somehow, most of them missed it. Almost all of them did. Here's why. It seems like the Jews... We're looking for the Messiah to come in a very different way. Extremely different. Some of them awaited a variety of messianic figures, prophetic, priestly, and royal, but they did not expect the Messiah to be divine as well as human or to suffer, die, and rise from the dead for their salvation from sin. They certainly did not understand the messianic role of establishing the kingdom of God on earth 
Instead, they looked for God to use a purely human figure in bringing military deliverance from Roman domination. That's what they were looking for. Or some of them believed that God himself would deliver his people and then maybe introduce the Messiah as ruler. They believed that this present age, this evil in character, was to be followed by the utopian days of Messiah. In other words, most of them were looking for an inaccurate version of Messiah. So when Jesus actually appeared as the Messiah, he was unrecognizable to the Jewish people that had been waiting so long for him to come. Kind of sad that the people he came to save, the ones for which he was to establish his kingdom, rejected him. This doesn't seem right. Well, this was the reality for the first century Jews. So let's take that Jewish hat off and let's put our 21st century hat back on. Switch to your modern day Christ follower chair and let's see how Jesus as Messiah applies to us today. Well, today we're afforded the luxury, as we said, of being on the other side of Jesus' time. That luxury is invaluable. We have a perspective that the Jews had no clue about. They weren't able to look back and see how those things were fulfilled. We can look back at the entire New Testament and recognize the incredible reality of Jesus as Messiah, the Anointed One. Remember, we started with the idea that Jesus is the Anointed Messiah who came to establish the Kingdom of God among His people. And we have seen that Jesus is indeed the Anointed Messiah. So now let's explore the second part that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God among people. We see in his teachings on establishing God's kingdom on earth throughout the New Testament. In fact, many of Jesus' parables attempt to paint a picture of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. You know, in Matthew chapter 13 alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure, and the parable of the dragnet. That's just in one chapter. Most of Jesus' parables are explaining what the kingdom of God is like. Well, what is the kingdom of God? The term kingdom really carries two meanings for us. One is kind of a sphere of rule, right? This is, in sports you may say, this is my house, right? You're playing on your home court. It's that sphere of rule. And number two is the rule or reign of God in that sphere. That sphere isn't just my house, it's God's. That's who's ruling there. So the rule of God in Christians' lives includes delivering those in God's kingdom from the oppression of sin or Satan's rule. There's really a comparison or compare and contrast here. Delivering those in God's kingdom from the oppression of sin or Satan's rule and bringing us, the Christian, into the rule of God and his kingdom of spiritual blessings and God's overarching authority. Does that make sense? So you're going from um, an away game to a home game, you know, and that's, that's a huge difference. In fact, teams would say they play totally different at home, right? Well, now imagine that being God's home, God's rules, God's authority, all-powerful. That's 
what he was trying to establish on earth. This is significant since Jesus came as Messiah, establishing God's kingdom, therefore giving us the ability to be free from the kingdom of Satan and enter the kingdom of God. This gives us the ability, the Bible talks about, to cross over from spiritual death to spiritual life. Spiritual life in God's kingdom. And not only that, but we get to experience the spiritual blessings that come from living in the kingdom of God. And one day Jesus will return to complete the full establishment of God's kingdom on earth, where there is no away game. There is no other alternative. Since Jesus came as Messiah to establish God's kingdom on earth, we have the opportunity to live in the sphere and the rule of God's kingdom, which the Jews could not see. They never recognized that. To live in the kingdom of God is to to daily decide to submit to God's authority and prioritize Him above all else. It is to be in close relationship with God through His Holy Spirit that over time He changes who you are on the inside to someone who better reflects Jesus, becoming more Christ-like. This is why Messiah came. And this is what He offers to us today. Isn't that incredible? Hopefully we're grateful for the perspective that we hold. That first century Jewish people who were waiting for their long-awaited Messiah literally could not see. But we get to because we were born 2,000 years later. So on Christmas, we don't just celebrate Jesus' birthday. And our, our family, will, our extended family will do that at times when we go to my parents' house for Christmas. We'll probably have a birthday cake and they'll light the candles and we'll bring it out and all the kids will sing happy birthday to Jesus. But it's so much more than that. To call it Jesus' birthday can maybe seem to trivialize the significance of who He is and what He came to do. So when you celebrate Christmas this year, understand that it's way more than just, oh, the birth of baby Jesus as a very cute and fun thing that we get to exchange um, gifts about. But at Christmas, we celebrate the long-awaited, anointed Messiah, to come to earth in human form and establish God's kingdom among people and make it possible to live in the authority and rule of His kingdom and be freed from the kingdom of this world. Does that make sense? What an incredible, incredible day we get to celebrate on Christmas. We get to celebrate Jesus as Emmanuel, as Savior, as Messiah, and as Lord. Let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 11 again. But I want you to read it from what we just heard and see if the verses, especially 10 through 11, maybe come alive to you or some of those words come alive to you in a way that they didn't before. Starting at verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. Does that read different for you this time? Do you see the significance of Christ or Messiah, maybe in a way that we haven't before? 
from the the perspective of who Jesus saw Messiah, or I'm sorry, who the first century Jews saw Messiah to be, compared to who we can see Messiah to be. So as we celebrate Christmas this year, rejoice in the significance of Jesus coming as the anointed Messiah who established the kingdom of God among his people. And we get to be a part. This is awesome. Thank you, God, for your indescribable gift. For his indescribable gift of sending Messiah to us. Would you please stand with me this morning? I want to conclude in a time of prayer but hopefully a time of some reflection as well. God, I just want to thank you this morning that as we celebrate Christmas, Lord, we understand again the incredible significance of you coming to earth, being born as human, as the Messiah. And God, I ask that you would help us to understand this familiar story in a new way. That you would give us a new perspective, God. Lord, that we would be able to live as, as people in God's kingdom. Because that's why Messiah came. That we would be able to see Jesus as the long-awaited one. The only avenue in which that kingdom could be established. And Lord, help us to be able to not only live that way, but to be able to communicate that to other people by how we live and how we speak. Lord, help us in our families and just in whoever we come in contact with that, that our, our, our thinking, Lord, and our way of celebration would be communicated, the significance of it to those around us as well. That when we celebrate Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of a baby, but of the long-awaited Messiah. Thank you, God, that we have the perspective 2,000 years later to be able to see something completely out of our control. So God, help us to be able to see it for, for what you intended it to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.